Welcome to the Advanced Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Rotelli. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Steve Stenerson. Steve is the CEO of U.S. Lacrosse and played college lacrosse at North Carolina where he won two national championships in 1981 and 1982. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Uh, I'm great. Thanks, Chris. And a pleasure to be here. And thanks for spending some time with me. Absolutely. Excited to get into this. I want to start at the beginning. How did you first get introduced to the game of lacrosse? Well, I was fortunate enough to go to a a school called St. Paul's, which is just north of Baltimore City in Baltimore County. I started there in kindergarten and um, in the lower school there, they actually included lacrosse as a part of their physical education uh, activities. And we, uh, in third grade, uh, third and fourth grade, we had something called a field day in which uh, the students competed in various individual and team activities. It was a big deal. You know, you divided in blue and gold teams and it was a big rivalry. And, and lacrosse happened to be one of the competitions that we played there. So, I, you know, this was back in the wooden stick days, of course, and it just stuck. Um, it was, you know, I, I enjoyed it for all the qualities uh, that it that it possesses today and uh, have been very fortunate to play in a, a number of different levels. That's awesome. Did your parents play, or were you the first first one to pick it up? You know, my dad never played, no, but I, an interesting story, and the first women's lacrosse program in the United States was at a school outside of Baltimore called Bryn Mawr, and the first lacrosse coach there was a Scottish uh, lady by the name of Rosabelle Sinclair, and she, the women's game was born in Scotland, as you probably know, and uh, she brought lacrosse to the Bryn Mawr School and the United States. Well, coincidentally, my mother went to the Bryn Mawr School and had Rosabelle Sinclair as her PE teacher. And while she, my mother wouldn't classify herself as a lacrosse player, she did play lacrosse and was taught lacrosse by Rosabelle Sinclair. Wow. So that, that's, that's an interesting coincidence um, relative to my family. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Uh, so, you went, so from St. Paul's, you went down to North Carolina where you won two national championships, 81 and 82. Those are really the glory days for North Carolina lacrosse. It was, it was the powerhouse. Um, what are some of your fondest memories from your college days at UNC? Well, there's a lot of them. I'll first say that I was a very average player on very good teams. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to be the, the average player on great teams. Um, what I remember is my first year was Willie Scroggs' first year. Obviously, he's a Hall of Fame coach now. Uh, it was a pretty magical time, very different from the experiences kids have today, the all-consuming college experiences kids have today. We were committed, but there was more of a balance. And um, we had a great cross-section of guys from uh, upstate New York and Long Island and Baltimore, mostly Baltimore and Long Island. And it, w- it really was a magical time because nobody really expected much of us. And Coach Scrog was a- Scroggs was able to put some magic together in, in the, the individuals he molded as a team. So just, a, just, just a, an incredible experience, one of the best decisions I ever made to go there. That's awesome. Um, who, who's the best player you played with or against while you were there? You know, that's an impossible question. <laughs> I should spin that's that why I asked it. You and put you in the hot seat. I would, I would probably uh, piss off a lot of my good friends if I picked one person because there's we, a lot of good uh, I couldn't pick one person. Yeah. I mean, we had so many great players from Tom Sears to Mike Burnett to Peter Vocal. I mean, it, these were first-team All-Americans, John Hawes. Uh, I mean, it was incredible that, you know, part of that is certainly 
you know, the magic of Coach Scroggs. But also part of that is I think Coach would suggest is good fortune and and chance. You know, as they say, it's better to be lucky than good. And I, I think Coach Scroggs was both and really uh, set an incredible culture down there. And um, it was uh, it was a great experience. I, I believe when you were there, you played in that famous Armadillo game um, where WNL tried to win by literally hiding the ball in like a human shield. Take us through that game from your perspective as a player and talk about what happened. Well, if uh, if I did a little bit, or, a little bit better at the faceoff facts that day, they wouldn't have as many <laughs> opportunities to hold the ball. So that's uh, so I own some of that. And, but no, it was it was a crazy time. And uh, Coach Emmer, as he's often said, uh, talked to his captains and said, "Look, uh, you know they went through a buzzsaw a couple of weeks earlier and lost to Virginia by a big margin. We had just beaten Virginia by a big margin pretty recently." And he, uh, the creative Hall of Fame coach as he is, had had uh, so, you know some very unique ideas about keeping them in the game for three quarters and then playing that fourth quarter straight up as they did. But you know it was very frustrating, very surreal. You, many people have seen the pictures, the videos, even online. It's um, you know it was everybody asked me about that game as unique as it was. Uh, luckily, we got out of there with a win and. Uh, um, what was the final score? Oh, geez, I can't remember. But we won by two or three. I but think. it was close. So they Very close. They, yep. they scored and then basically tried to stall. Well, they they were able to hold the ball for minutes at a time, three, four, five minutes at a time. They, uh, if I lost a face off, they'd come down, work it around, take a sweep, shoot the ball intentionally over the goal. But the officials couldn't determine whether it was intentional or not. They'd get. They'd get possession of the ball, step in the box, call a timeout, bring out a, um, a, a, a goalie stick that had a, a handle that was one foot long. And the, uh, the pocket was literally eight inches deep. And, of course, there's no pocket depth restriction on a goalie stick or, or uh, any length restriction on a goalie stick. That person would stand in the middle and he would be enveloped by the other five players. And they, those players would be arm in arm in a circle around the goalie holding the ball. And, of course, at the other end of the field, you can only have one goalie stick on the field. So at the other end of the field, the goalie had a regular stick. And you couldn't penetrate that circle of players with the ball carrier in the middle with the goalie stick. And, you know, the, you know we, we, we played right into their hands. That, that frustration resulted in penalties as we tried to jam our sticks into the ribs and in between the players uh, who encircled the ball, it was not, I would not have wanted to be one of those players in that circle. It was no fun. Um, but then we get two or, th- you know, one or two penalties against us. They'd, uh, they'd break out of it and uh, work an extra man and sometimes score. So it was an ingenious, ingenious uh, strategy by Coach Emmer. And was there a quick rule change after that to prevent that from happening again or it was immediately banned. It was <laughs> and, uh, within uh, days, I think. Um, and in Coach Emmer, my, my understanding is Coach Emmer had reached out to a guy named Bob Sandell, who was a legendary official, uh, one of the top officials in the country, who was in the Charlottesville area, and had kind of walked through his th- this particular strategy with Sandell, asking, "Hey, is there anything in what we're?" 
contemplating that would be illegal as the rules are currently wit written. And of course, uh, Bob Sandel said no. Um, but they quickly uh, made some some edits to the rules soon thereafter that that next week so that uh, it never happened again. Uh, that's crazy. What a story. Uh, the pictures are amazing from that. I love the article you guys did in, in the lacrosse magazine. So as you've been CEO of U.S. Lacrosse since 2008, um, what is the state of the game today compared to when you started in 2008? And what do you think it looks like 10 years from now? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I actually was, have been fortunate enough to be with U.S. Lacrosse since its inception in 98. So it's been 20 years this year, we're in our 20th year. And prior to that, I was uh, the executive director of one of the eight organizations that merged to form U.S. Lacrosse back in 1998. That organization was called the Lacrosse Foundation. So, I mean, your question's a great one. I, I think, the, you know, the game has come a long way and the college game has really driven um, kind of the changes at the lower level. And sometimes I think that's been for the, for the good and other times it's been for the bad. I think part of what we struggle with societally is this privatization of youth sport uh, across all sports and sports specialization at an early age is a trend that has uh, been very negative in terms of sport participation. Um, you know, the, the national trends of youth sport participation have been on the decline for more than a decade. And at least part of that is because uh, of this trend of sports specialization, which results in burnout of kids and, and overuse injuries, which are at record proportions today in youth sports. And part of it has to do with privatization, which in many ways has made youth sports generally and, and youth lacrosse specifically um, less and less accessible. You know, the average American family can't afford thousands of dollars in club fees and the additional thousands that you invest in tournament participation, et cetera. So um, all of that has been driven in lacrosse and in other sports uh, by the dream of playing in college or the dream of getting an admission advantage or the dream of getting at least a partial scholarship. Uh, and of course, we're very concerned about that trend um, because it is making the game less and less accessible. You know, in terms of what, what that looks like in the future, what happen in the next 10 years, you know, right now we've got, you know, um, uh, community lacrosse, which we define as kind of town based or rec based program, which is what many, many learn the game on. Very accessible, very inexpensive, fun, um, not a not a 12 month a year process that components of community lacrosse have been uh, negatively impacted by club programs. Um, uh, you know, not that club programs have intentionally gone after rec and, and, and uh, community lacrosse program, but, but there's been a national, natural attrition as the families who can afford a club experience are able to pay for the club experience and the rec programs uh, are left with those who can't. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the game is making the game more expensive is, is obviously not making it more accessible and therefore making it more difficult to grow participation. Um, national youth lacrosse participation has flattened from its, its real, you know, aggressive uh, growth pattern over the, you know, uh, in the early 2000s leading into the teens. Uh, we're concerned about that. Um, there's kind of a, you know, uh, parents who are really the consumers of their child's lacrosse experience. They're the ones writing the checks and making the time commitments to go 
take their kids to tournaments and, and practices. They're really kind of, um, you know, uh, I, I think the best way to put it is they're unprepared um, to really make good decisions on their child's youth athletic experience, um, and, and understandably so. Um, so I'm concerned about what that means over the next five to 10 years in terms of accessibility of the sport as we've got this really he- this kind of unregulated youth sports uh, business machine out there, again, across all sports. It's not unique to lacrosse. And I think part of the key in trying to, um, trying to evolve that current model is, to, is for organizations like U.S. Lacrosse to be able to reach across the aisle and, and find opportunities for collaboration with clubs to help increase the accessibility of the sport. I mean, clubs aren't bad. Uh, at all. They're great clubs out there, private clubs, and they're clubs that aren't as great as you and I both know. And and the same is true of community programs for that matter. They're wonderful community programs and they're community programs that need to improve uh, the quality of experience they provide. But I think if we're going to, as tough as it is to grow the base of participation, particularly in in a culture in which youth, youth sports participation overall is on the down uh, on the downswing, we we got to find ways to work together, and certainly the private clubs uh, are, you know, uh, play an important role. I think in the future growth of the game. Yeah, uh, that's that, there's a lot there. That's really interesting. So you mentioned the game was growing at a faster clip and has kind of flattened. I think, as you said, how fast is the game growing right now? And you know, what needs to happen to accelerate that or get it back? To where it was before. Well, um, I'll say that uh, we do a national participation survey each year. We started that in 2001, and um, we, you know, we use existing data out there, National Federation of State High Schools data in terms of high school participation. We obviously look at the NCA, and then we do um, our own youth sports participation survey nationally, working through youth. Uh, youth leagues and chapters, et cetera. Um, there, you know, the you look back in the in kind of the glory days. You look back in the 2004 to kind of 2010, and average growth was really around low double digits, 10 percent, 11 percent average through those five or six years. And you come out of 2010, and you go from uh, about uh, 2011 was 9.6, 5.5. 3.4, and so on. Uh, 2017, we projected a growth of 0.1% of total participation. So you're going from 10% to much lower than that over the course of a decade. Um, and so that trend is not what we want to see. Um, part, part of it is, and lacrosse is unique, we've done some research on lacrosse to, to look at multiple multi-sport participation, which all of really everybody supports the importance of not, especially at the younger age levels below high school, you know, not sports specializing and playing the same sport eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months a year, because that is very hard on a developing body, you know, skeletal structure, joints, et cetera. Um, that repetitive motion in a developing child is not good uh, for that, that body's development. So, um, you know, that's 
that's that's a real concern, I think, uh, of of single sport participation. But but in lacrosse, we have pretty strong multi sport participation. Uh, the 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 real the the kind of secret to that or the unique component of that is that many more kids are playing multiple sports year round, and you know that's also not necessarily good. Kids generally need a break from sport and from particular sport. But we found that in the last couple of years, we did some research and found a lot of cross kids are playing multiple sports, but they're playing them both or all three of them more year round. So very interesting dynamic there. Recently, Paul Rabel launched a new pro league called the Premier Lacrosse League. What are your thoughts on pro lacrosse in general? And do you think this new league will be good or bad for the sport? How do you see this playing out over the next few years? Um, I chuckle because U.S., you know, as the sports national governing body and a national nonprofit association, we're we're uh, have the opportunity to work with everyone and uh, and to look uh, where we look to work with all stakeholders who want to advance the game and who kind of believe in our mission to grow the game and grow it the right way. And this is a great example. We're We've always worked with the MLL, and uh, I know their commissioner quite well. They're not so new commissioner anymore, Sandy Brown. Well, we played together at Mount Washington uh, post-collegiately, and he's a great guy and a great leader for the MLL. We also obviously know Paul very well and, um, and his leadership team because he's been an incredible supporter of U.S. lacrosse and an incredible member of our national team. You know, I, I think, and this is no secret to either uh, Sandy or Paul, I think um, the, the, the real disappointment is that the resources are so limited as they are today to advance our sport. It's a shame that there couldn't be some sort of singular unified approach here. But I certainly understand the reasoning and that, you know, players um, had, had cumulative frustration over their experience in the MLL. Uh, unfortunately, Sandy came along and inherited that cumulative frustration and is, you know, obviously working significantly improve the MLL's uh, model and experience. You know, Paul is, Paul's got an exciting new concept as well. He's, he's uh, you know, he's a, a tremendous, you know, he's as intelligent as he is gifted on the athletic field. And he's put together an incredible um, asset, I think. And, you know, we're going to be working with the PLL as well because they, like the MLL, are aligned with their mission to try to grow the game. Um, I, you know, I don't know that, uh, that the sport of lacrosse can sustain two men's professional leagues for long. Um, you know, that, uh, just like I don't know that lacrosse can sustain two professional women's field leagues for long. Um, and I'm hopeful that there can be some um, you know, some, some progress made on the women's side to kind of consolidate their, you know, two very, two very distinct efforts into one. Um, at least for the short term, the PLL and the MLL are going to operate independently, it it appears, and they're going to have overlapping seasons in 19. And I think, uh, we'll have a lot more data to to consider as will they in September of, of 19. Um, but, the good news about the PLL and is, uh, among other things, that they're, they've significantly raised the profile of our sport. You know, with their NBC deal, 
um, with all of the, the media attention, uh, not just within lacrosse, but outside of lacrosse that their, uh, their endeavor has uh, created, it's, it's, it's good. Um, and so, you know, we wish all leagues, and I didn't mention the NLL, um, but we, and with whom we work as well, you know, Nick Well and, and have uh, been working with their league since he arrived and before. So it's, it's an interesting time for sure with respect to the professional game. Yeah. So do you think the PLL and the MLL will end up merging or do you think one of them goes away over time or do they both survive and people care about both? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, um, clearly. And, and so I really have no basis upon which to make this prediction, but what I'm hopeful of is that they can, those two league models can find common ground and somehow at some point consolidate because I think um, they're stronger. There's so much passion and so much investment on the MLL side with their owners and the league. And I think the world of Sandy um, and there's so much obviously passion and investment on the other side to kind of unify that around some sort of um, uh, some sort of unified project, I think is, is really the ideal. And, and as everybody's probably heard, they, they evidently have and were discussions between the PL leadership and the MLL leadership uh, as recent, you know, over a year ago and more recently, and they just couldn't um, reach terms. But there's, there's, there are too many good people and incredible investors um, on either side. If we could just find a way at some point to unify that effort, I think that would be in the best interest of the sport and the, and the potential of the pro league. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, there's also been a lot of talk about a push to get lacrosse into the Olympics. Um, I know you're a big part of that effort. What needs to occur for that to happen? Is that something you see coming soon? Well, uh, yeah, my insight comes from the fact I'm vice president of the Federation of International Lacrosse, which is the sports international governing body. And uh, we've just, uh, with a, uh, about a year ago, we hired the organization's first CEO, a guy named Jim Shear, who's former uh, CEO of the United States Olympic Committee, incredibly well connected and and um, and uh, very respected in the international sport community. And, and the FIL has been able to generate some sizable philanthropic support to fuel an Olympic dream. And that's enabled us to hire Jim, uh, a guy like uh, of Jim's caliber. And Jim is in the process of hiring a small uh, staff team now to really focus on that Olympic vision. So what has to happen is, first and foremost, the FIL needs to be recognized by the International Olympic Committee as the International Federation for the Sport of Lacrosse. Uh, the FIL submitted an application eh, maybe two years ago um, that we've been managing and we've been managing kind of the to our the best of our abilities, um, working with the IOC, managing that application process uh, and um, are hopeful that in the relatively near future, we'll get uh, provisional recognition by the IOC of the FIL. That's everything starts there. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Jim and the board have uh, developed and embraced a very aggressive and visionary uh, strategic plan that has 
a number of different significant um, components to it all happening simultaneously. Um, once we get IOC recognition of the FIL, um, then we, we have to, well, I shouldn't say once, but as we anticipate getting that recognition, we have launched a number of different initiatives. Um, we have engaged a, a, a national branding firm that uh, will work with the FIL to kind of rebrand the entire organization. Um, we are uh, investing heavily in international development and the, um, the evolution of continental federations, which are critical, will be critical to our competition structure. We're re, uh, taking a very fresh look at our governance structure and likely will adopt significant changes in our governance structure uh, over the next year or two. Um, we're looking at uh, a new discipline for the sport because what we know is that the International Olympic Committee caps the number of athletes at an Olympic Games and that any team sport is at a decided disadvantage to be considered for inclusion in an Olympic Games because it represents a chunk, a large chunk of athletes as compared to an individual sport. So you may have heard that we've, um, I chair uh, what's called a Blue Skies Task Force for the FIL that is looking at um, just that, kind of trying to create a, uh, new disciplines for the men's and women's game that will better position us for Olympic consideration. And they, it all starts with a much smaller squad size. Hmm. Right now, uh, the, the men's world championship squad size is 23 for field. Uh, the women's is 18, I think, and they are far too large. So think about a, a lacrosse team that's 10 or 12 players. Yeah, that's, that's where we have to get to. Um, actually, uh, we, we've trialed those rules. Our U.S. men's and women's teams have been very helpful to the FIL, and they've, they did an initial trial of those rules back at our fall classic. Our U.S. women's team is in Orlando uh, this weekend, uh, and we'll uh, trial those uh, kind of adapted, uh, evolved rule sets. So a whole new discipline is, is at work uh, currently. And then finally, the, uh, we have to take a complete fresh look at our world championship structure, platform, and frequency. We've got to structure world championships such that they are maximizing the sports marketing uh, opportunities and also maximizing revenue potential for the FIL. So a lot going on. Oh, yeah, a lot going on. So talk about the game a little more. So 10 to, 10, 10 to 12 players on a team, uh, is it, does it, is it played in a rink like box lacrosse? Um, could it be box lacrosse or is it a smaller field played more like traditional field lacrosse would be? Yeah, right now our model is, is based on a smaller field like traditional field lacrosse. There seems to be a preference of the IOC from our discussions of, of an outdoor field game versus an indoor game. And, um, but yeah, I mean, if you, if, uh, everything kind of, emanates from squad size, size of field, duration of quarters, et cetera. And, you know, the cool thing about that, Chris, is it's, it's very disruptive. There are a lot of people out there that, um, that will probably raise their eyebrows when they eventually see these new smaller-sided uh, rules trialed. But it's interesting, you know, U.S. lacrosse has gotten behind a, a lacrosse athlete development model. It's all about kind of right-sizing the lacrosse experience for the development stage of the child so that, you know, your eight-year-old doesn't need to play on a 120-yard field, right? Right. And, 
And there's a lot of value to the eight-year-old playing in a smaller field, more touches, more fun, et cetera. Well, the irony is there's a bell curve that appears to be forming. And the bell curve starts at youth where you're playing a smaller-sided game. And as you age up into high school and college, you're playing in a larger format game. And then as you come down the bell curve to the elite player again, you're playing a, likely a small-sided game again. So what it looks like is, a, is you know, like um, roughly speaking, and, and nothing's been finalized, but like a 60 by 35 field, you're looking at um, all the field markings between the women's and men's disciplines would be identical. The goal is not only a smaller uh, squad size, but also to uh, try to reduce as much as possible the subjectivity of the rules such that they're easily understood, yeah. uh, not only by players and officials and coaches, but by fans, by spectators. Um, we're right now doing a six on six with a midline, goals and creases, and offside. So that one player each from uh, each team is behind the midline, as well as the goalie. And you're playing four on four uh, on the other side. So um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, uh, we've done away with face-offs and draws, with the exception of face-offs and draws at the beginning of each quarter and overtime. It's a complete running clock, eight-minute quarters. The clock doesn't stop uh, unless there's a timeout, quarter end, or um, injury. Um, what else can I tell you about it? Um, oh, you know, there's an interesting but subtle rule change on a shot. We've decided to go with it. If you shoot the ball and miss everything, it's a turnover. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, what other sports are there where you throw the ball out of bounds and you get to keep it? So, so that's kind of a, a thumbnail of what wow. we're looking at, and it's ever evolving. But um, we're hopeful to present the FIL board with um, kind of a final recommendation in January when it meets in conjunction with the U.S. Lacrosse Convention in Philly. Last question, and I'll get you out of here. So uh, what advice would you give players and parents wanting to pursue uh, playing lacrosse in college? I know you're a father as well of a, a boy and a girl who have who both play lacrosse. So w what advice do you give people right now as they're watching their kids play? I think I would give I would say. Uh, in no particular order, be skeptical of the opportunities that present themselves. Um, you know, uh, la lacrosse is not just a sport anymore. It's an industry. And you've, you're, you're a consumer of lacrosse goods and services, and you need to act that way. You need to ask good questions about, um, uh, about opportunities, their cost, their value. Um, it's critical to be a good consumer uh, the hardest part about being a good consumer is is bucking the trend, uh, because what typically happens today is a parent, many parents have no idea what to expect when their when their kid starts to emerge as a middle schooler and really likes the game and the, their friends are playing for this club or going to that tournament or whatever it may be, and um, it's hard to resist just saying yes 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 I'll write the check we'll you know we'll spend six weekends a year traveling in the summer to tournaments and we'll somehow figure out a way to pay for it or. I would say fight that urge and not that those experiences are necessarily bad, but they're unnecessary. Um, and to a large degree, uh, if, if that starts at too young an age, you are putting your child at a disadvantage because, uh, they may very well burn out, um, or be injured because their bodies are developing and they need a rest. So, 
skeptical, good consumer, seek out wise voices in helping you to make decisions. And the toughest part about being a parent is saying no. Um, and whether that's to a lacrosse opportunity or, or to many other things that your children want to do. But as, as, as one person told me years ago, um, and it's not a new saying, is, you know, if you asked your 10-year-old if she would like to eat ice cream every night for dinner, most would probably say yes. But you, but, but you as a parent have to say no. And it's a parent's responsibility to, uh, to make sure in this day and age they're well-educated about, uh, you know, the, the program, the culture of the program, how their children are treated, what qualifications a coach has to teach their child correctly, um, all of it. And you have to be a skeptic um, and a good consumer these days. I love it. It's great advice. Steve, uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Chris. 